Welcome to Onco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am a professor of pharmacy practice here at supporting at the supporting sponsor of Onco Farm, UTSU's Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. It's a rainy, rainy August 3rd, gearing up for the start of classes here uh, at the college. Uh, we got a, a couple um, catch-up approvals to talk about. Um, not a ton of actual new information here. Um, that we haven't talked about on the pod, uh, but we're going to start with the uh, FDA approval of distarlamab with chemotherapy, followed by distarlamab maintenance for primary um, advanced, so like metastatic, or recurrent endometrial cancer that is mismatched repair deficient or microsatellite instability high. Uh, we've talked in the past about the uh, the pembrolizumab plus carboplatin and, and paclitaxel uh, data from the uh, NRG uh, GYO18 study. Uh, that was um, carboplatin and paclitaxel plus pembrolizumab followed by pembro for like 20 doses or just carbopaclitaxel. Um, and that showed uh, an improvement in disease-free survival, uh, especially for those that had mismatch repair deficiency. That hazard ratio was 0.3. For those um, that did not have mismatch repair deficiency, that hazard ratio was 0.54. No overall survival from that study has been uh, reported. So when you add PEMBRO to chemo and advanced endometrial cancer, you improve PFS regardless of mismatch repair deficiency, but there's more benefit in those who are mismatch repair deficient. Unclear what that overall survival benefit is. Now, that is a category one recommendation for advanced endometrial cancers regardless of mismatch repair deficiency or microsatellite stability status, okay? There was also a category one, and as long as it's not carcino, carcinoma, a more aggressive uh, form of, of endometrial cancer, to use the Starlimab based on the RUBY trial, which is the basis for this FDA approval, okay? And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the RUBY trial, which was published um, a few months back in the New England Journal of Medicine. The approval for Distarlamab is specific to mismatch repair deficiency or microsatellite instability high advanced endometrial cancer. The RUBY study enrolled all patients uh, and they got AUC5, carboplatin, or paclitaxel 175, the standard gynoc dosing, plus or minus distarlamab with chemo for you know six cycles of chemo and then distarlamab maintenance. If you look at the 24-month progression-free survival, in those who are mismatch repair deficient or microsatellite instability high. These are the folks who would expect more benefit for immune checkpoint inhibitor. Really really big difference in 24-month estimated progression free survival. 61% versus 16% has a ratio of 0.28. In proficient mismatch repair or microsatellite stable, estimated 24-month PSS, 36% versus 18%, still pretty impressive. It has a ratio of 0.76, so still benefit. Now, if you look at all those patients for overall survival, there's a statistically significant improvement in overall survival. If you look at just those that have mismatch repair deficiency, 24-month estimated OS is 83% versus 59%, hazard ratio 0.3, quite impressive. Mismatch repair proficient or microsatellite stable, estimated 24-month overall survival, 68% versus 55%, hazard ratio 0.73 with our 95% Cromsville crossing one. Less impressive, however, uh, our favorite guidelines give both chemo plus pembro and chemo plus distarlamab category one recommendations. They don't. They don't not. Dif- they do not differentiate. Blew. They don't differentiate whether or not patients are mismatch repair deficient or unstable. Now, if you are microsatellite um, 
instable or mismatch repair deficient. There are data for doing single agent startlemap or map in the second line study, and that becomes the key point in evaluating this overall survival data, which is not available at this point. What was the post-progression therapy in those folks who just got chemo? Uh, my guess is that is the basis for FDA, yeah, I don't know, but that's my guess is the basis for FDA only providing this approval in those who are um, mismatch repair deficient or MSI high. Pembrolizumab does not have an approval with chemo in this setting for endometrial cancer. It does have an approval for mismatch repair deficient uh, in a second line setting, if my memory serves me correctly. So that is the Ruby study. So, uh, you know, if you're looking at this, we, you have, you know, two category one recommendations for these folks who aren't carcinosarcoma. Um, and it's chemo plus Pember or chemo plus Dostarlamab. The Dostarlamab data has been published and has the overall survival data is uh, is out there. It's in this New England Journal of Medicine publication. The overall survival data for the Pembro study is not out there. So I would favor the known known versus the unknown. Uh, so I'd favor the Dostarlamab here if you uh, you know put a um, you know put it to me to say which one would you choose. But, you know, I would imagine um, we're never going to get a head-to-head -head comparison of those two. That is the Ruby study, which led to that approval um, uh, just a few days ago for Dostarlamab plus chemo. Again, and that FDA approval is limited just to mismatch repair deficiency microsatellite and stable. Now, this is, um, you know, there's a, a discordance here between the FDA approval and what's in the label and what, you know, the NCCN guidelines say. Uh, and that doesn't mean that you certainly could that you can't use Dostartlemap at microsatellite stable. You know, we have guidelines that say this is a category one, category one recommendation. They don't differentiate by microsatellite instability. Those folks that are microsatellite stable are not going to benefit as much, probably, uh, if at all in the long run, without seeing that overall survival data. But because it's in the NCCN guidelines, it'll be paid for, uh, and that's what people will do. The FDA has a, a little bit higher bar here, which um, is, is interesting to me. Okay, so that's the Ruby study. Uh, the next thing I'm going to talk about is the approval of Quizartnib on July 20th for um, FLT3 um, mutated uh, AML in conjunction with 7 plus 3 chemotherapy and during consolidation and during maintenance. Uh, we talked about uh, the Quantum First study a few months ago. The big you know, flaw in this study is they compared Quizartnib plus chemo to just chemo, um, even though we knew that mitostarin, another FLT3 inhibitor, uh, was uh, had shown overall survival benefits. So the classic, what you see in oncology studies funded by the pharmaceutical industry, the control arm is not the standard of care. It's substandard, so it's not surprising that a drug that has just a little bit of activity showed benefit. Uh, but the big problem with this study, besides that that flaw, was there was more death in the quizartinib arm early on in therapy. The Kapmeyer curves, the overall survival curves cross, which made me say at the time, hey, if you're going to use quizartinib, uh, in this way, if it gets approved, I, I think I might not give it during induction because more people died in that arm in that first month than afterwards. Uh, and it looked to be due to cardiac toxicity. So now we have the approval. Uh, we have the label for Quizart. It's its first approval. Uh, it's got boxed warnings for QT prolongation, torsades de points, and cardiac arrest. Um, QTC elevation um, beyond 450 milliseconds using the Fredericia formula. Uh, the need for ECG monitoring if people are on concomitant QTT prolonging drugs, and the need to dose reduce if they're on a um, cytochrome P453 for potent inhibitor and a REMS program. Uh, there are contraindications for severe hyperkalemia, it looks like K less than 3, severe hypomagnesemia, magnesium less than 0.9, for uh, long QT syndrome, 
and anybody with a history of ventricular tachycardia or ventricular arrhythmia or torsades. Uh, other interesting thing, in the publication in Lancet, the dosing that they're using of Quizarnib in that study were like 40 milligrams, 30 milligrams, 20 milligrams, there's an escalation to 60. The dosage forms we have are 26.5 milligrams, which can be doubled up to be 53 milligrams, 17.7 milligrams, which can be doubled up to be 35.4 milligrams. So one of two things I'm guessing happened, or a third thing that I can't think of. One is the dosing that they cite in that study turned out not to actually be 40 milligrams. They were just rounding up, and FDA said, you can't call this 40 when it's only 35.4. Or they've actually decreased the dose a little bit in what's approved um, for some reason. I mean, 26.5 milligrams is very specific. So I, that, I, maybe there's something in the briefing documents that, that somebody, uh, that, that we can look into and figure that out. But the dosing's a little, a little different than what was actually published in Quantum First Study. Uh, and I don't know, I'm just speculating why that would be. Um, the dosing of this, of these agents, begins after chemo. So if you do seven plus three, the dose begins on day eight. If you do five plus two, Quizartum begins on day six. If you do HIDAC, um, presumably one, three, five, then Quizartum starts on day six uh, with induction. Uh, we have information now that you need a 50% dose reduction if you're taking a potent 3A4 inhibitor, posaconazole, voriconazole. That's based off of a 94%, that's called 100% increase in AUC with a single dose of ketoconazole. We do know that there's, quote, no clinically significant change in AUC with a one-time dose of fluconazole with quizartin. Now, that's just a one-time dose. If you take multiple doses, presumably you would, you would still not have that interaction, but we know that from the PI, that a one-time dose of fluconazole didn't increase exposure of quizartin. Um, we know that um, there's an interesting thing reading the information about QT prolongation. So the reason that quizartin causes QT prolongation is that uh, it blocks the slow delayed rectifier potassium current, whereas the PI makes it sound like every other drug that prolongs the QT interval does so by blocking rapid delayed rectifier potassium current. And I'm quoting now from the PI, therefore, the level of QTC prolongation that predicts cardiac arrhythmia is unclear, end of quote, which is why there's so much information and boxed warning and potentially the increased deaths we saw. Uh, because this is a, a manifestation, a mechanism of QT prolongation that we're not used to dealing with, perhaps. Um, so there is a REMS program, so prescribers need to enroll and complete the training. The training looks like a slide deck and then like 10 questions. Many of them are true, false, or multiple choice, where one of the answers is all of the above. Really poorly written questions, it looks like. Uh, there's um, patient counseling that needs to be done and a wallet card given to the patient. And then pharmacies have to be certified uh, and then certified that prescribers are enrolled in the REMS program. So that we do have some safeguards to make sure everyone's aware of the, the, uh, the arrhythmia and sudden death risk with this drug. Um, Mitostarin, the more you talk about Quisartinib, the better Mitostarin seems from a safety standpoint um, here. So uh, I'm not going to talk a ton about, um, uh, you know, the, the quantum first study. Talked about that already on a podcast. This is a dangerous drug. Uh, it's a drug that we don't know has any added benefit compared to mitostarin uh, as well. So it, it would be really hard for, pressed for me to, to offer why you should use quizartinib over mitostarin um, unless somebody couldn't tolerate uh, mitostarin, uh, which, you know, does have some, some nausea and a little bit of QT prolongation on its own that can happen. Um, but 
but mostly it's just just nausea. Um, so there's again a lot of drug drug interaction potential with QT prolongation, with those potent three or four um, inhibiting azole and fungals like posaconazole, voriconazole that you have to worry about. Uh, monitoring QT syndrome, your potassium, magnesium stuff that we're we're used to doing in oncology, um, but anytime the PI says we don't know how much QT prolongation leads to the risk of torsades, makes me very very worried. Uh, really eager to see some cardio oncology folks uh, um, use this drug and publish their evidence of is there. Um, other risk factors we can identify. And of course, there are lots of risk factors we know for like torsades, um, beyond the QT prolonging things like risk of hype, you know, if you have untreated hypertension and uh, history of arrhythmias, all that, those risk factors are spelled out in the PI as well. Okay, and then the last approval happened just yesterday based on the sunlight study also previously discussed on this podcast. That's uh, trifluoridine tapiracil, uh, brand name Lonserf, plus bevacizumab in mesetic colorectal cancer. After those patients have received a fluoropyrimidine, like 5-F-Eurocapesidabine, irantecan, oxaliplatin, anti-VEGF agent, like bevacizumab, uh, and then an anti-EGFR agent like cetuximab or penitumab if they were a candidate, then Lonserf plus bevacizumab is FDA approved now. Um, talked about that, that it seemed seemed pretty good evidence at the time. Um, so not much more to offer about that approval. I do want to come back to Quizartnip and say the brand name of Quizartnip is Van Flitta or Van Flyta, V-A-N-F-L-Y-T-A. So they, they put a Y in between the F-L-T and the brand name so people can pronounce flit, I think. So they probably want you to say Van Flitta. Van Flyta? Van Flitta? Van Flitta. Van Flitta. Uh, anyway, so that's what I have for this week on the podcast. Thank you for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, at FarmDeetNib. You can follow me on uh, Instagram and Twitter and threads at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Doses matter.